it's knowing myself, first of all, what can I do? What are my limitations? A lot of us, we don't even think about that. We just Mm -hmm. assume that we can do it all. And unfortunately, that's just not right. Hello, and welcome to Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. I'm Jill Farmer, one of the co-hosts of the podcast and lead coach at Doc Working. And I am really excited today to be joined by Adrian Bracey. Adrian Bracey is an MBA, a CPA, an author, a business and personal coach, consultant, and motivational speaker. She's the retired chief executive officer of the YWCA of Metro St. Louis, where she served for nearly 12 years after spending 18 years in senior financial management with the National Football League. She transitioned from the NFL to the nonprofit sector to follow her passion to inspire and make a difference in the lives of women and girls. Adrienne has received so many awards. We can't list them all here through her career, including Black Enterprise 50 Most Powerful Blacks in Sports, Black Enterprise 50 Most Powerful Women in Business, Business Journal's Most Influential Business Women, and she is the author of a new book that takes a look at her leadership legacy over several decades in both the business and nonprofit world called Halftime, Learn to Pivot as a Leader and Identify Your Next Step. And that's what we're going to be talking about today for you physicians is helping you to identify as a leader and to think about when we need to pivot to determine your next step. Adrian, thank you so much for being with us today. Jill, it is an honor. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Oh, I just am been so excited about this conversation because I had a chance to read the book and I think there's just a lot of really clear information, but mostly I think if nothing else, if somebody wants to be a leader or not, they should read the book just because your own story is mm-hmm. fascinating. You write candidly about your early life and how it impacted your later life. So let's start at the beginning. You're born in Miami the youngest of six children, and your mother, unfortunately, struggled with mental illness. And you were raised in early childhood by other relatives. And of course, that was a big pivot point in your life as well. Pick up the story for us there and tell us what happened. Sure. So I was fortunate, Jill, to be left with family members that really cared for me. And although the neighborhood is called Liberty City in Miami, Florida, which is infested with drugs, prostitution, and gangs, and unfortunately, some of my family members, they fell prey to the environment, I had an opportunity at eight years old to join the neighborhood co-ed flag football team. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? And I was pretty fast. So because of my speed, I was drafted as the running back on the team. And so that was my first, I guess, introduction to football. And I loved it. It kept me out of trouble. And that's why I love when I hear that kids are really involved with sports, because sports is really a way to just take your mind as a child off of the negative things that's happening around you, which was my case. But then I was fortunate at 10 years old to be adopted by other family members. And my adopted mom, Dorothy, just instilled in me the faith that I have now in God. And that was my foundation. And so that's kind of, you know, my early childhood. You know, I was just fortunate to learn faith at such an early age. Well, and you talk about how moving into your life with Dorothy as your mom and her husband became your new adoptive parents as your mom and dad that you hadn't really clicked academically in school previous to that point because you had believed some stories that other people had told you about who you were. And to have your newly adoptive parents 
see the potential in you, something clicked and it sort of directed you, or that was one of your first pivots into a whole new direction in terms of understanding what your potential was. Am I saying that right? You said it right on. You're right. That was my first pivot because I did have football to keep my mind off of things. But at eight years old, my cousin actually told me that I was going to one day be dumb and stupid and crazy like my mom. And so because of that, my grades were terrible because I really thought I was dumb and stupid. So it wasn't until I was adopted that the positive thinking of my adopted mom instilled in me when she told me that I could one day be a successful businesswoman if I studied hard, made good grades, and graduated from college. And then, Jill, the strangest thing is I believed her. Just like that, my whole life pivoted. I mean, it was just amazing because I had no clue that I had that in me. I'm telling you, I was an A and B student all the way through college, and I graduated with honors from high school and college because of that one comment from my mom, my adopted mom. You're smart, and you can do this. You've got everything you can. You just need to study and apply yourself, and that's what I did. You sure did. And another pivot came. I know you talk about when you were going into college thinking that you wanted to do pre-law and then had somebody else see some real propensity in your test scores toward a career in accounting. And so that led you on a path that you probably could never have imagined as you were either a young college student or thinking about your academic career. So walk us through, you graduate with honors, then after you decide that accounting is the direction you want to go from Morgan State University in Baltimore, and then walk us on the fascinating journey, if you would, of your professional life post-college. Sure. After college, I stayed in Baltimore for about four years working. And then my grandmother became ill and I thought, well, you know, this is a great time for me to move back home to Miami. So I did. I joined a professional organization called the National Association of Black Accountants and it's NABA for short. Well, I worked really hard, Jill. I mean, I took this position that I volunteered for called the Director of Student Affairs. I took it seriously where I tutored young people in HBCUs in accounting and One day, the president of the organization said, I have something confidential to tell you. I said, okay, we go to lunch. He tells me that he just interviewed for the controller's position with the Miami Dolphins. And I was stunned because that's a dream job. Like, wow. He said, you know, and I used a mutual friend and I said, well, I'm sure he's going to give you a very good reference. Get back to my office after lunch. The mutual friend calls me. He said, Adrian, I just want to let you know that I received a reference for our friend, but I really want them to interview you first. And I referred you. So I got a call from the Miami Dolphins. I interviewed for the job. I got the job. And then I had to call my dear friend back and tell him that I just took your job. So as you can imagine, we are no longer friends today. Those are (laughs) tough conversations sometimes. That was very, very tough. So I started with the Miami Dolphins. And I can tell you, I went through halftime, like within a year of my being there. I came to this point where I knew I had to make a change. I wasn't happy. And it's like, okay, what am I going to do? Well, I had decided, Jill, that instead of leaving the Miami Dolphins after a year, why don't I just get my MBA? And this way I can then go and work for IBM, which was what I thought I was going to do. Just get my CPA, my MBA, go work for IBM. And IBM back then was like this giant to me, you know, we're talking, you know, 30 years ago. And so that's what I thought. Well, I did that. I got my MBA. And like, as soon as I graduated, my boss, I reported to the treasurer for the Dolphins and the treasurer for the stadium. 
Robbie family owned both the team and the stadium and the stadium treasurer who I reported to resigned. So right after I get my MBA, this position opens up. And so of course they offered it to me first and I took that position and that was the beginning of my 18 year career in the NFL from that one pivot. And from there, you went on to take over in leadership on the financial side of things for the St. Louis Rams, including during their run to win one Super Bowl and play in another one. And Dick Vermeil, the famed football coach, wrote the foreword to your book and really talked about your ability to make pivots and being able to watch the way that you've made pivots in your life and career is inspiration to us all. And then also Maxine Clark, who's the founder of the Build-A-Bear Workshop total entrepreneur who took this idea and made it into you know, one of the most successful companies in its sector in the world, that had to be really heartening to reach out to these people that you had admired and had been mentors and leaders to you and have them write the forward to your book. My gosh, I can't even tell you the joy that I had when they said yes. And Coach Ramil, as you may have read in the book, originally he asked, why do you want to write a book several years ago? You know, we're at Isaac Bruce's 20th anniversary of the greatest show on turf. It was a reunion. A lot of the players came back in town. It was a gala. And so coach was there. And I said, coach, you know, I think I'm going to be retiring soon. And I want to write a book to help me launch my new career. And he said, well, book on what? I said, on leadership. Why do you want to write a book on leadership? Do you know how many books there are out there right now on leadership? I said, oh gosh, I felt so deflated. And I said, you know, maybe you're right. That's okay. So that was, I guess, in 2018, maybe, or 19. And I just put it on the shelf because there are a lot of books on leadership. I have at least 10 to 15. Yours is one of them as well. So I realized that there are a lot of books around leadership, but you know, when I decided to really go for it, I reached back out to him and he not only said, yes, Jill, but he sent me a portfolio of his speeches on leadership. I was so honored that he entrusted me with his private speeches on leadership. So I just love him to death. And then of course, Maxine is one of my mentors. She's from Miami, Florida. So I felt, you know what, you're from my hometown. I can call her my home girl, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And so she took to me immediately after I took this job, leaving the NFL to go into nonprofit was a tough transition. I'm sure we may talk about that pivot later, but I reached out to her because one day at dinner, she had a red pencil. And so we were sitting next to us and it was a group of women. And she said, Adrian, I'm going to give you this red pencil. And she gave the story behind this red pencil that was so important to her that her high school teacher gave her when she was a young girl. And so she told the whole story about how important it is to just follow your dreams and, you know, that whole story. So I reached out to her and she said, yes. Yeah, that was great just to hear their endorsement of you. And I think that question of Dick Vermeule, while it was deflating at the time, it was probably clarifying. And you can tell me where I'm wrong because it was like, yeah, why am I really writing this book? Why does it matter? How can I have it make an impact? And sometimes being challenged like that to really dig deeper gives us some stronger roots and deeper motivation. Was that your experience in this case? Yes, that was exactly my feeling. I thought at first it was deflating, but then I hired a coach, Edie Varley. And talking to Edie, I said, you know, Edie, I reached out to coach a couple of years ago because I wanted to write a book. And she was so funny. Before I told her about coach, she said, why do you want to write a book? 
And I thought, oh my God, this is the same reaction that I received from coach Vermil. But then I talked to her for 30, 40 minutes and explained to her why at the end of our first coaching session, she had my outline. Just, she took notes of what I said. She said, I've got your book right here, babe. (laughs) And so that was awesome. Oh, wow. That's really, really cool to hear. So let's pivot a little bit toward some of the ideas on leadership and pivoting that I think are really relevant to our physician audience. One of the things that Maxine talks about in her forward is the fact that you're one of the only women in the NFL working in these leadership positions, certainly the only black women working in these positions. And one of the things that you brought to the table, in addition to being incredibly hardworking and smart and convicted about really doing a great job, was the desire to be a team player and to have people work together. And as a leader, even though your inclination is to want to have people work together and to have a lot of harmony, you write about in the book, conflict happens. And that's one of the biggest areas for your growth as a leader, both in your role in the NFL and then moving into your not-for-profit transition as well. And I know that's just really common for our physician listeners who are moving from maybe a role into leadership, that conflict is part of it sometimes. So talk a little bit about what you've learned and how you mentor other leaders around the subject of conflict. Sure. And you're right. In conflict, it's not only going to happen in our career, but it's going to happen in our personal lives as well. And to be honest, I've even found it happening right in my spiritual life in church. So there's going to be conflict. But what I have experienced and what has helped me with that is being able to listen. A lot of times we don't always listen well. And I believe, especially physicians, that is like critical to be able to listen. Because, you know, this is the one thing as a leader that we do sometimes. Someone is talking and we're already thinking about the answer to their conversation. So we're really not listening, you know, and that old saying that we have two ears and one mouth. So the two ears, really, it's because we need to listen twice as hard as we speak sometimes. So listening is one of the things that I had to really improve to be a good leader. And then just communicating. Sometimes we think people know what they're supposed to do. And the conflict arises sometimes when we don't communicate that properly. My coach Edie said to me once, she said that the root of all conflict is unmet expectations. And I thought, you know, that is so true personally and in my career, because just my husband, you know, in my mind, I expect him to wash my car every Saturday that I expect that, but I've never communicated that to him. So when it doesn't happen, I'm upset. Like, why can't he wash my car? Well, guess what? I didn't communicate effectively to him. So he doesn't know. And it's the same thing on the job. You know, a lot of leaders, we assume that because a person may have the title or the education that they automatically should know what to do, but it's up to us as leaders to communicate it. This way, it takes out that person thinking that this is the way it is, but it really isn't. So communication is like top of the line, listening, communicating, and understanding as a leader For me to really help with the conflict when I'm more compassionate and I have empathy for that person, because I really don't know what that person is going through. Anything could have happened before they came into the office, but I have to really take a step back as a leader and try to understand what is it 
and just talk to that person. Let's just talk about what's going on. So, I mean, those are some of the things that has helped me on a personal note with dealing with conflict personally and professionally. Great. I know so much conflict comes from one person guessing what the other person is thinking. And so you just articulated that so helpfully through that. Let's talk a little bit about that pivot, right? Since we're talking about pivots as leaders from NFL to -to not-for-profit and Mm -hmm. what was incredibly meaningful about that and what was also incredibly challenging about that for you. Sure. What was meaningful, first of all, was at the end of my career in the NFL, I knew that it was time to pivot. I mean, I knew that I was at this place of halftime, trying to decide on what's next. What adjustments do I need to make, if any? Or do I stay here? Because I've had some half times in my career where I didn't really leave the job. I changed what I was doing on the job. So I reinvented my job so that I was able to stay in the Rams as one of them. I was ready to leave after about a year of being with the St. Louis Rams. And I just reinvented my position and I ended up being there almost 12 years. So you don't always have to leave a job when you're at halftime because you know there's something different or even pivoting, you know, you're going to change, but it doesn't mean you have to change a job. It just means sometimes you have to change what you're doing to make it exciting again. And so I knew it was time to pivot. So I took a course, Writing Your Personal Mission Statement by Stephen Covey, and included in my personal mission statement was Enhancing and Inspiring the Lives of Women and Girls. So I felt that my next chapter, whatever it was, was going to include that. At least that's what I prayed for. And eight months after taking that course, the YWCA CEO position opened up. And then I felt like, honestly, like I had just won the Super Bowl because now I'm getting to work with an organization whose mission is eliminating racism and empowering women, which coincides with my personal mission statement of, you know, inspiring, enhancing women. So for me, the transition of my pivoting to NFL to nonprofit fulfilled that burning desire to do more to do something for me that was more of passion. Now, I was able to fulfill that in the NFL by joining boards like Girls Inc. I was actually on the board of YWCA, you know, 20 years ago, and then just mentoring young women. So I fulfilled that passion, even working in the NFL. But now this pivot, I'm actually working in the industry or the swim lane of my personal mission statement. So it was awesome. The challenge that I experienced was going from NFL having deep pockets to working for a nonprofit that had hole in the pockets. Totally different (laughs) financial, you know, setup there. But the difficulty really in that was fundraising. It is really difficult for some nonprofits to raise dollars. You know, and I came from the NFL, the best hotels, everything was five-star, everything was top class, you know, and now I'm working for a nonprofit where instead of me going to an event to give money to a nonprofit working in the NFL, I'm now asking for money. And that was tough for me. That was a big transition. I am a giver, so I love to give, but I'm not a salesperson. And so really this position required some sales techniques because I had to ask for money. And so that was the big challenge. The other big challenge was really working with a different demographic. Working in the NFL is just totally different with the employees than working in nonprofits. So those were some of the challenges that I had. There are many more, but overall, the transition, because I was doing what I truly believe, Jill, is my calling, made it easier. Yeah, you used the passion, if you will, the mission 
to help provide fuel in your tank to get you through those challenging stretches. And you did a really good job of learning how to get through your own discomfort of selling things because you (laughs) helped the organization grow exponentially through just an incredible amount of financial support and growth to have a lot larger impact. So you won't brag about that, but I can do that on your behalf. One of the things you talk about in the book, which of course was one of my favorite chapters, (laughs) was talking about how even as a really highly capable person who has juggled such big balls in the air with, you know, a lot of high impact and high stakes, you still needed to focus on your own time management skills and priority management skills in order to get yourself to that next level of thriving. And so like me, you're somebody that time management didn't necessarily come naturally to because you want to do all the things all the time at the same time. So you had to kind of step back and shore up those skills in order to pivot to bigger and better leadership. So talk a little bit, if you will, about that part of your journey. Well, I'm glad you asked because you were a big part of my success, especially writing the book, actually. It just dawned on me what was some things that I struggled with in my leadership roles and time management, not only professionally, but personally, going back to personally as well. So working with you, Jill, and you won't toot your horn, but I can. So it was a big help, especially some of the things that we went over that I included in the book, I've actually used with some of my coaching clients. I have a client right now, a text message from her. And she said, Adrian, it changed my life. It works if you work it. And the one thing that's easier for me now is calendar. Just the calendar was the thing that I just was not able to manage. And so for her, she never even used a calendar. It wasn't something that she thought about. So just, you know, introducing her to that, it was the blue for her. That really put all of it together for her. But for me, it's really knowing myself, first of all. What can I do? What are my limitations? A lot of us, we don't even think about that. We just mm-hmm. assume that we can do it all. And unfortunately, that's just not right. I mean, it's not even human pot, but we think it is at that moment. I can do it all. And the other thing is, I remember not wanting to miss anything. So I wanted to go to every event. And a young lady, I think she told me it was called fear of missing out. So my time management was because I said yes to everything. I didn't even know about COVID. In 2019, I said at the end, I said to my friends, I'm going to learn to say no, so that I can have time to do some of the things that I want to do. But then COVID hit, I didn't really have to say no because everything was shut down. So that really, you know, helped me to get in that frame of mind. I don't really have to do everything and to go everywhere and to be every place. And then my husband just loved it. He was like, wow, we're going to actually have dinner at six o'clock because I was able to try and balance that work balance that we talk about. So just managing my time, managing myself, managing just what's realistic. I love that. In the book, you talk about something that you and I talked about a lot, which was delegation and recognizing that it's values-based because you're going to do a better job when you do use your own discernment about what's in your wheelhouse and what isn't, and then delegating and talking about that prioritization. Cause you were somebody that, you know, you're very mission driven <laughs> yes. that who's been given much should be giving much. That's one of your philosophies. And yes 
that meant when you say yes to everything, your values can get diluted because you don't really get to dig in. And so that was discerning for you and I, you know, even though it's hard to say no to people, what really is highest ranking with your value system? So you could really shine there. And I loved the way you discussed that in the book as well. Well, finally, it's just been really sticking with me in my mind after reading it, where you talk about your embrace, the philosophy for leaders of embracing. And you have it kind of set out that each of the letters in that word represents something powerful for leaders. Can you talk a little bit about your embrace philosophy and why it makes a difference? Absolutely. Well, it makes a difference because each word represents something that I had to do as a leader to be the person that I am. That philosophy actually came from another coach. I took a coaching course. You know, and that's the thing I do. I want to say to people that if you feel that you need help, it's okay to ask for help. A lot of times leaders, we feel that we know it all, but, you know, believing in myself, having that resilience being accountable, having that courage, and then evaluating at the end my whole strategy. If I put a strategic plan together for Adrian Bracey, if we do it for our business, and we do, most leaders have a strategic plan, but we don't evaluate, which is pivoting almost. You know, we're still going right back to pivoting. So if I want to get better, I have to, first of all, evaluate what I have done to make sure that it's in line with my goal or goals But if I don't evaluate, then I don't know if I need to pivot because I'm not even thinking about it and just making sure that you're flexible with that evaluation. You know, so that's called my signature framework that I learned from my coach, Lethia Owens. I loved that because it was just the embrace stands for empowerment, movement, believe, resilience, accountability courage. And then, as you said, evaluate, as you were just talking about here, each one of those words has so much power when we think about how we're making those things happen in our life and how we're using each of those words in our leadership as we're leading both of ourselves and other people as well. So I'm so glad that that framework came to you because it's just something that I think really is meaningful as a leader to sort of plug your own experiences into and see what's lacking and where you can shore it up a bit. Absolutely. I have a chapter on accountability as well, because those are the two things that for a leader, being accountable, for me, being accountable helps me continue to be what I need to be. So writing the book, having a coach that I was accountable to really helped me to continue and complete the book and resilience. Oh my gosh, COVID has really, you know, it's just hurt. It has hurt so many people. So having that resilience, not to give up, bounce back, All of the words are important. (laughs) It's hard to pick out of embrace which word is more important. They're all important. Yes, of course, our physicians listening have had to (laughs) have almost superhuman resilience thanks to COVID over the last, you know, 18 to 20 months. And so to remember that it is something that we can cultivate and that on the other side of it often is something really meaningful is something that I don't think we can emphasize enough in our conversations. Well, Adrian Bracey, this has been fun. I could talk to you all day long about your own story, about the ways that you pivoted as a leader and the way that it gives us ideas because pivoting doesn't always mean leaving or taking off or going no. to new horizons. That can mean it and it's happened to you in meaningful ways. But I love what you said earlier that often it's just in the metaphorical halftime of the game, right? Whether it's yes. in a certain job or in a certain season of our kid's life or certain whatever. 
to pause and say, is there some different game plan I want to try out to see how that works and brings different results? It's just a really cool paradigm for us to think in terms of. So thank you so much for so generously sharing your wisdom and time. It has been a pleasure and honor. And my hope is that one person who listens will at least gain something. That's the whole purpose of the book was really just giving back and helping someone else. Well, the people that you are now leading are lucky to learn from your wisdom and experience. Adrienne Bracey, thank you so much for being with us. And thank all of you for listening. I hope that you are inspired to look for ways that you can lead yourself or others in your life and practice as a physician. And until next time, I'm Jill Farmer with Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. Let's face it, sometimes in medicine, leaders end up in their positions because of their achievement, not because of their leadership skills. If you're in medicine and you're a leader and you wanna improve your skills, or perhaps you're a physician who would like to be a leader someday, if either of those things are true, then you need to hire a physician leadership coach, somebody with lots of experience working with physicians to help them identify what kind of a leader they wanna be, help them implement a plan to become that leader, and to help them leverage their strengths so that they can be the best they can be in a leadership position. I'm Amanda Taran, producer of Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast. Thank you for being here. Please check us out at docworking.com and please don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you for listening.